Well, now, if you would, uh, turn with me back to Hosea, our favorite prophet, one of our favorite prophets. You know, every time I read and prepare for another chapter, another uh, section of Hosea, it always becomes my favorite. And so tonight, this is uh, my favorite chapter of Hosea, chapter 11. Would you turn there with me? And in this chapter, as we've already mentioned, as I've already mentioned in the service, as you may have seen the the title of, of the sermon, The Father's Love for His Son, the theme of God as Father is one of the most prominent themes in all of Scripture, and its importance cannot be overstated, and it shows up here uh, with much importance. The mere, the mere fact that uh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God incarnate, became flesh, and he uh, taught his disciples that they are to pray, beginning by saying, Our Father. Just think of the, the implications of that. That we do not pray to some aloof deity out there, but we pray to a father. To someone who loves us, who desires to hear from us, who desires to receive our petitions and our prayers and our thanksgivings and our our doubts and our struggles. But how can this be? That's the question before us this evening. How can it be that the God of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, the eternal and living and true God, how can that God, how can it be that he would be our father. And maybe this is something that you struggle with, this, this idea of God as father. Maybe uh, because of your earthly father and your relationship with him, maybe that soured your understanding and your ability to think of God as your heavenly father. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you don't trust him. Or perhaps maybe you have a guilty conscience that is telling you there's no way that God thinks of me this way. There's no way that God would want to be my father. There's no way that he could view me as a son or as a daughter. At best, he puts up with me, but deep down, he would just as soon be be rid of me completely. Those are the questions and and those are the doubts and those are the struggles that our passage this evening uh, helps us to to wrestle through and to answer. This chapter in Hosea, chapter 11, it plays out like a story, a story in three parts. It's a story of the father's love for his son. How can it be that we have come to be loved by our father in heaven? How is it that we know love? How can we rest in this love? How can we have assurance of this love? The Spirit of God tells us through this story. So let's read uh, this passage of Scripture. I'll read chapter 11 for us. And then we'll pray that the Father would add his blessing to it. Let me read now. Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. 
I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your prophets and that by your spirit you inspired them to preach these words and to put them to writing that we also can learn of you and benefit from them. And Lord, we thank you most of all for your son, your beloved son that you sent to live and die and who was raised again on our behalf. We pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word. May we grow in knowledge and love and affections toward you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past uh, several sermons in Hosea, we saw how God's uh, prophet, he made three specific uh, accusations that uh, encompassed all that was wrong with Israel at the time. Hosea chapter 4 verse 1, there is no faithfulness, there is no steadfast love, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. This was the summary statement that defined Israel's sin, that defined their covenant breaking. And now in, in our passage, in this passage, God is using that prophet to tell them the story of the relationship with, with Israel, with his son, God had raised Israel like a father raises a son. He had taught Israel to walk. He had nourished Israel so that he would grow big and strong. He loved Israel so much. And yet, all this love, all this this nurturing and support and care, Israel turned his back on his father. Instead, as the son grew up, God found that there was no faithfulness, there was no steadfast love, there was no knowledge of God, there was no knowledge of him as father anymore. And so the question becomes, what is the father going to do about it? That's what the story is all about. This is the story of the father's love for his son. And the story begins first in verses 1 through 4. We see the first part of this story as Yahweh, as as the Heavenly Father. He reflects on his time with his son, on the upbringing, the early years of this rebellious life of his son, Israel. And so we we jump back in time, as it were, in this first part of the story. We have a, a flashback to Israel's youth, 
It's as if Yahweh was reminiscing, was looking through old photographs. He was thinking back on the good old days. Yahweh loved Israel with everything he had, and he demonstrated that love by calling and bringing his son out of Egypt. It's an obvious reference, of course, to that Exodus event, that that, uh, immensely important event in the history of Israel. See, Israel, God's son, would no longer be a slave. Israel would be a son. And yet, we see this relationship did not last. Verse 2 tells us how the relationship between father and son had begun to, to strain almost immediately. We see that the more the father called out to the son, the more the son went away. He began to listen less and less. And not only did he ignore his father, but he did the exact opposite of his father's instruction. The father lovingly spoke to them as he brought his son out of Egypt. He said, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You are no longer a slave. And now here is what's best for you. Here is what you are to do now that you are my son. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall make no idols for yourselves, no carved image of anything, certainly not bowing down to anything nor worshiping anything else but me alone. And yet we see that the son rejects that command completely. And instead he went and he kept sacrificing to the Baals. He went and offered offerings to the idols. His son ran from his father and went to other gods. And Yahweh laments this fact. How do you not know? How do you not remember? It was I who taught you how to walk. Were you not there when I took you out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm? I took you up in my arms, as it were, and led you out of Egypt. When you were sick, I nursed you back to health. Verse 4 continues this beautiful imagery of of this tender and loving father caring for a a difficult, rebellious, stiff-necked child. Uh, This verse, verse 4, it has caused some commentators and translators difficulties, but I will offer you what I think is the best understanding. In, In the beginning of this verse, the ESV says that I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. That is to say, as, as one commentator uh, put it, that this image depicts the tension of a parent raising a child, a, a parent who leads by example and whose restrictions represent the limits of one who is wiser than the child. Parents in the room will understand that. We have to restrict our children. We give them bedtimes for their own good. We restrict what they can watch, what they can say, even who they can spend time with. And why do, why do we do that? It's because we, we hate them? We want the worst for them? No, of course not. We must put restrictions on our children. And we don't always get parenting right, but we do it because the cords and the bands and the bonds and the restrictions that we place on our children are those of love and of kindness to them. They need them as they grow up. 
And if we as fallible and, and sinful parents, if we can understand the importance of raising our children in that way, though we do it imperfectly at times, how much more does our Heavenly Father restrict us and discipline us and chastise us, as the scriptures say, he chastises those whom he loves. So going back to the text and the second half of verse 4 now, let me suggest a different translation from the ESV. Uh, this one from the, the NRSV, which I think gets more closely to what Hosea is saying here. The NRSV says this, it says, I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and I fed them. This is what Yahweh, the Father, did to his son Israel. He bent down. He picked up his child. He picked up his infant, held him on his cheek as his kid spit up all over himself. He picked him up to feed him, to, to hug him, to kiss him. This is how the father interacted with this infant child. He did exactly what every parent does. He picked up his child, kissed him, coddled him, nursed him when he was sick, changed his poopy diapers, kissed him, and squeezed his chubby cheeks. That's what Yahweh is saying here. I was a father to you. Do you not remember this is... This is how I interacted with you. This is how I loved you. Like Calvin uh, describes it uh, so helpfully about God's, God's language here, this anthropomorphic language. It's, it's not saying that, that God has parts or passions or hands or, or mouths to kiss as it were, but God is condescending down to our level of language so that we can understand him and we can know him. And, and Calvin will say that this is like the parent or the nurse who, who lisps and speaks in baby talk and stammers to, to their little baby to interact with them, to, to make uh, him or herself known uh, to their child. This is what the father has done. This is how the father has loved his son. But those were, unfortunately, just wonderful memories they did not last. The, the present did not resemble the past. But rather, we see that the story continues. Verses 5 through 7, we see the, the second act of the, sor- of the story. The disobedience has reached a climax. There, there must be action that, that must be taken now. The father must diso- uh, punish this disobedient son. Well, now right away in verse 5, we're met with another question about the text. So bear with me briefly again, but, but this is so important because examining this will, will help us uh, uh, and provide us much insight about what uh, God is speaking to us here. Uh, so the ESV begins, verse 5, and says, uh, They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But there is a footnote uh, on the word not in the ESV, and if you would look down at that footnote, it will say that this could also be translated as surely. Now, you cannot get any more opposite than that. <laughs> you can't get more opposite than yes and no. So, so which one is it? Is Israel not going back to Egypt? Or is Israel surely 
going back to Egypt? The answer is yes. <laughs> it's a great pastoral answer when there's a tough biblical question. But that is the point that's being made here. In a sense, they are not returning to Egypt. They're not returning, returning to the geographical area, the specific location that's known on earth as Egypt. But they are, however, going to return to what their life was like when they were in that land called Egypt. Israel is not going to be a son anymore. They're going back to being a slave. This time at the hands of the Assyrians. It is as if they were returning to Egypt. They might as well be returning to Egypt because the Lord, their father, is raising up Assyria to conquer, to conquer them. And the reason he gives is very simple. Because they have refused to return to me. When the father brought his son out of Egypt, he brought him to the foot of Mount Sinai. He met with his son there. And when he went into the land before them to conquer the land, Israel, his son, willingly agreed to the terms of the covenant. And with his words, Israel was an obedient son. But with his actions, he had abandoned his father. And because he turned his back on the father, the father now turns his back on the son. Verses 6 and 7 describe what this judgment looks like. The sword of Assyria will, will rage against their cities. Uh, the cities will be destroyed and devoured. And even when the son begins to return to his senses, he starts calling out to his father, the Most High. We read that he will not be raised up. Yahweh had fathered Israel. He had raised him. He had done all he could for them. And now we're left with this horrible, sad ending to this story, as it were, that he would not raise him up again. My people, my son, Yahweh says, are, they're, they're bent on turning away from me. In verse 7. It's, it's in his very nature. I can't do anything about it anymore. I've tried and I've tried to straighten out this bent that's in him, but it's just part of his nature. No matter what I do, he always uh, falls back into the same habits. There's nothing left for him to do. The father, the father must act because the Father is perfect. The Father is holy. He cannot allow imperfection and unholiness and unrighteousness to persist, and to exist. Do we, under, do we understand that? Do we understand the holiness of God? It's so stark here in Hosea. It's, so, uh, it's, it's everywhere. Do we understand the sinfulness of our sin? Do I understand the sinfulness of my sin? I stand up here preaching words about how sinful sin is, but do I actually believe it? Do I actually understand it, that it's an affront to God, that it's, uh, it, it defames his very name and his very nature? And so like I, I said from the beginning, maybe you are struggling with sin, as we all are. And maybe you're feeling the weight of it and maybe you're asking yourself, how can God love me, a wicked sinner that I am? Maybe you are wondering and, and thinking to yourself and have felt like this, I know I felt like this, where you can say, yeah, I can articulate the 
doctrine of the atonement pretty well. I can recite the shorter catechism answers to what is justification and adoption and sanctification. And but why can't I believe it? And if that is how you're feeling, if you've ever felt that way, then let these next verses bring you comfort because the story does not end there. This is the story of the father's love for his son. The father has, has watched his son grow up to only to abandon him. That led the father to have to punish his son for his disobedience and rebellion. But then we get to this third act and we see that the father, he could not leave his son. He could not leave his son there. Verses 8 through 11, we read of the father's immense, incredible unending love for his son. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Israel, you are my son. How can I hand you over? The language changes so rapidly from verse 7 to verse 8. It's, it's, it, it should surprise us. It's almost as if the father could not even, even finish that thought. <laughs> but he, he had to get to the good news. The father cannot treat his son this way. How could he give him up? Would he really let his son uh, to uh, be no different than, than Adma and, and Zeboim, two nations along with Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed? Is there no difference between God's son, the father's son, and these wicked nations? Can this father treat his son like he treated those nations? No, he cannot but his heart recoils within him. Sharp pangs in his heart shoot through him. He, he loves his son. He has compassion on him. His compassion grows warm and it grows tender. And this is the picture of how your heavenly father loves you. This is how he cares for you. This is how he loves you and delights in you as a daughter, as a son, of the Most High God. And perhaps you're still doubting, how is it, how can it be that God loves me this way? Certainly that's too good to be true. That news is too good of news. I can't believe it. It is true. And we know it's true. Because it's only because the Father called His Son, capital S Son, now I'm talking about, called his son out of Egypt. And this son died on a cross for our sins and was raised to life and now brings us out of our own Egypt, out of the Egypt of our sin and our misery into adoption as the sons and the daughters of God. How can you be sure of the Father's love for you? You look to Jesus. You look to him. In Jesus, we see the story of Hosea 11. We see it unfold. The father calls his son out of Egypt as, as Matthew tells us in his gospel. This was done to fulfill the words of the prophet. Only this time, this son is perfectly obedient. This time, this son resists temptation in the wilderness. This time, this son keeps the commandments and the statutes of the law. This son delights in the law of his father and meditates on it day 
and night, doing the will of his Father is food to him. It's his nourishment. He loves it. This is the Son whom the Father loves. This is the Son who was the promised Son of the woman who would crush the serpent's head even though it cost him his life. This was the son of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the son, the eternal, uncreated, preexistent, second person of the Trinity. This is the son whom the father loves. And yet, because God so loved the world, he loved the world in such a manner, in such a way, He sent his son, his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in this son would not perish, but have everlasting life as adopted sons and daughters. And so it was the will of this father from before the foundation of the world to choose for himself and to predestine those whom he would adopt into his family. And because that was the will of the father, he gladly And with love and compassion in his heart, sent his only begotten son willingly to earth. And it was this son, willingly and with love and obedience to his father's desire, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, took on flesh and stood in our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. With joy, this son went to the cross, knowing what it would cost him because the redemption of his people was worth the price. And it was the Spirit who proceeds from Father and Son who willingly and with love anointed the second person of the Trinity incarnate, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, anointing him to be God's Messiah, to empower him for the task set before him, And in order that he would be a high priest uh, who could sympathize with our weakness, immediately, Mark's gospel tells us, immediately after the son's baptism, after the father declared from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, immediately it was the will of the father and of the spirit to send his beloved son into the wilderness so that he could suffer and in every way be tempted as we are. And only this time, this son would succeed where God's son Israel had failed. This son would withstand all the attacks of the devil, every temptation, so that his sacrifice would satisfy divine justice, do our sins. And by this same spirit, this son was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And it was good for him to go to his Father, to leave his disciples behind, he tells them. Because he would be sending this very same Spirit to them, who is the seal of this great promise of salvation and the guarantee of their inheritance and of our inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. And it was of this gift of the Spirit, the Spirit that dwells, In each and every one of you, if you are in Christ, if you've given your life to him, 
It's this spirit that the Apostle Paul writes, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We belong to him. Everything that is Christ's is ours. That is the Father's love for his Son. The Father loves the Son, and if you are in this Son, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are not a servant, you are not a slave, you're a son, you're a daughter. And if the Father would not spare his very own Son, will he not also give us all things? That is the Father's love for you. All whom the Father has given to his Son, he will by no means cast out. And so if that is not true of you, if you've not given yourself to Christ, if you're not resting in that love, then come to Christ. Know peace. Understand this love and know it and and feel that peace and that knowledge and that rest that comes through knowing him. But if that is true of you, if, if you have given yourself to Christ, if you understand even a little what this, this love means, if you're resting in, uh, on Christ alone, let me just simply end, uh, end with a, a simple uh, point of application. On the one hand, and Hosea does this so beautifully, juxtaposing the law and the gospel, and we, and we need both. And so on the one hand, there are some of you here this evening that are presuming upon God's mercy and his grace in your life, the mercy of your heavenly Father. There are areas of your life that you have not surrendered to him, habitual sins that you have not mortified. And while, while it's true that we will all struggle with sin in this life, It is our duty that as we discover, as we become aware of new areas of sin in our life, that we have the duty to not rest until we put them to death. So the question from our text is, will you continue to put the Lord your God to the test as Israel did? Or will you repent? Will you put on the clothes of the Son and the daughter of God? Will you flee to the loving arms of your Father? On the other hand, There are some of you here, like I've already mentioned, that have the opposite problem, the other side of the same coin. You are struggling with assurance. You see, this is the beauty of of Hosea. Is there any other book that so perfectly marries the law and the gospel, the law with all its fierceness and the beauty and the majesty and the mercy found in the gospel? So if you are struggling with assurance, then I want you to take verse 8, And I want you to put your own name in there. I'm serious. I want you to to write it out, to print it out, and put your own name in there. How can I give you up, Levi? That's what the Father tells me. I can't believe it. But I try. How can I give you up, Kathy? How can I give you up, Rick? 
how can I give you up? My heart recoils with love for you. How could I send you away? Write it out, print it out, read it to yourself every day until you finally believe it, if that's what it takes. And if you don't believe it, I want to talk to you after the service because I wouldn't have anybody leave here until they believe that, that they're loved by the Father. So rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in his love for you. Believe it. Rest in that truth. You are a beloved son and daughter of your heavenly Father through his Son and union with his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that you have blessed us in Christ, your beloved Son, with every spiritual blessing. By your Spirit dwelling in us, work in us the faith to believe that beautiful promise of Scripture that says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen.